This is Laura Deirdre with the Becker's Cardiology Podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Shelley Hall, Chief of Transplant Cardiology and Advanced Heart Failure at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas. Dr. Hall, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much, Laura. I appreciate the invite. Now, before we dive into the questions, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background. Yes, absolutely. So I grew up in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, but I did get to Texas as quickly as possible. I came down to uh, Dallas area for college, went to the University of Dallas, um, uh, Liberal Arts College in uh, Irving, Texas. Uh, They were known for their pre-med, had a great education, then went on to do all of my medical training, medical school, residency, and fellowship at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas. From there, I um, became the first heart failure transplant cardiologist at Baylor University Medical Center in Dallas, and um, I have stayed here um, since then. So I'm just completing my 24th year here. Well, fantastic, and I'm really excited for our conversation today. And my first question is, what are the top three biggest issues in congestive heart failure right now? Yeah, you know, it's, it's an exciting time for this field. It was kind of quiet for about a decade. We were starting to think we knew everything there was to know about heart failure. And then with the discovery of two big breakthroughs in new medications, the first being the um, family of medicines we lovingly call the Arnie's um, or um, the drug in that family right now is Entresto, really uh, broke open our um, complacency with medical therapy with heart failure. And where we used to think that ACE and ARBs were what we were supposed to do. Now, this family medication, Arnie's, have shown to be superior and, and have made it to the guidelines as the first choice. The second was a real surprise, and that's the SGLT2s. You know, here's a medication that was really initially thought about for diabetes, and then to discover it had all of the uh, benefits in um, heart failure that nobody really understood. And now it is uh, entering the guidelines as a medical therapy for heart failure patients. Um, so those that was the, probably the first two big ones um, for um, the medical field. And then the next is uh, on the surgical field, and that is where we're going with LVATs, um, the mechanical device that is implanted into the heart to help it assist for the very advanced heart failure patients. The newer devices have um, good durability. The adverse events have been decreased markedly. And now um, provide a viable alternative uh, for many patients uh, who either are not a transplant candidate or were not um, able to access uh, transplantation. So those are sort of my top three breakthroughs in the field in the past couple of years. Fantastic. And that's, you know, so interesting to think about how, you know, you think you're, you know, everything. And like you said, then all of a sudden there's some new innovations that come along that really do make a huge difference. So I'm wondering, how do you see heart failure care evolving in the next 18 months or so? Well, I would say that COVID actually accelerated this um, field in the sense of, I think that more and more Uh, emphasis is going to be placed on remote monitoring and patients' involvement in their care. Um, Between app technologies, virtual uh, visits through Zoom and televisits, and uh, ways to monitor so many aspects of a heart failure patient, you have the ability to track their vital signs, their weights, their quality of life measures, um, their symptom burden, 
Uh, you can even track their um, EKGs and you can do um, virtual exams through video conferencing. And then with the implantable sensors, um, one called a cardiomems can be implanted in it and it's continually measuring their lung pressures, which help uh, us as providers uh, control uh, their medications and adapt so that they don't decompensate and end up in the hospital. So with the COVID pandemic pushing patients to stay in their homes away from hospitals, a lot of facilities were forced to adopt some of these technologies earlier than they otherwise would have, um, or at least accelerated the timely table. And many are finding that they produce better patient care uh, and that we decrease hospitalizations. Uh, so I think that uh, pushing care to more virtual platforms for um, maintenance, especially. Obviously, critically ill patients are always going to exist. They're always going to need hospital services. But if we can improve the way we maintain the disease such that we can prevent the decompensations, then we can keep more patients at home where they belong. Got it. That that's, makes so much sense. And it's interesting to hear. And I'm wondering from the patient side of things, have they been pretty receptive to this type of change or has there been some hesitancy in terms of, you know, going home and being monitored in that way? Great question. Like every new change, broad bell curve of acceptance. There were some that were thrilled with it. And even when we started to open the clinic up, they didn't want to come back. They were like, why can't we keep doing it virtual? And then there are others who didn't have the technology or expertise, didn't have a camera on their um, computer or didn't understand how to do Zoom or activate an app. And so we are going to have to accommodate for all of those different learners. Um, you know, many, um, this is a disease of the elderly. And so a lot of them don't have some of that technological savvy because they weren't raised with it. And so being able to find applications and develop applications in the future that are easy and simple to do so that it doesn't require a lot of effort on the patient's part are going to be key to advance this field. Got it. Got it. Thank you so much for laying all that out for us. Now, what are you most excited about today and what makes you nervous? Hmm. So probably excited is that the field um, is continuing to evolve and that we're continuing to find um, discoveries that benefit patients. Um, with the medications I mentioned at the beginning, really, really uh, rocking our original beliefs that we were sort of done um, and, and unmasking that there are many new discoveries down the road with different types of devices that can help support the heart or stimulate the heart or modify the heart to try and prevent the decline in heart failure, uh, other medications that are being studied. I would say the pipeline of, of research and heart failure to benefit these patients is as rich as it ever has been. And uh, that's exciting after a decade of really thinking we were done. I would say what makes me most nervous is understanding where we're going to go in the future um, uh, as we slowly uh, come out of the COVID pandemic. Um, it's highlighted a lot of uh, inequities in medicine, um, racial, um, medical outcomes, access, and I think it's shi shined a nice spotlight on um, areas that we have a lot of work to do in the medical field. And heart failure is definitely one of those areas with 
um, it affecting minorities greatly and it being a risk factor uh, for death in the COVID patient. So I'd say that, that analyzing our systems of process in the healthcare field and how we can make sure that we're getting access to all of our patients, um, especially the most vulnerable, um, is a big task. Uh, and how we're going to do that and how quickly we're able to do that is probably what makes me most nervous. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it'd be really interesting to see how that plays out in the next few years. And hopefully the technology will be able to align um, to make that easier. Now, before we wrap up our... Yeah. Before we wrap up our conversation, I was wondering if you could share three pieces of advice for emerging physician leaders today. My goodness. I I would say the first is uh, don't take on too much. Um, You know, for physicians that are eager to get into a leadership field, uh, we're not necessarily trained on what that means. We're trained on medicine. We're trained on how to take care of patients. And so I think it's important that if you're entertaining moving into a leadership position, that you get a mentor who can uh, guide you on uh, what's involved in that type of position. Second is don't say yes, just to say yes. If you're going to be an effective leader, you need to be passionate about what you're doing. And so pick and choose your opportunities. It is okay to say no. Um, It's better to not do something at all than to do something haphazard or with lackluster intent, such that that becomes the reflection of who you are as a leader, when it was really just not the particular um, thing that you were interested in, but you felt like you had to do it. And then third is, is timing is everything. Um, You don't have to take on everything in the early years of your career. You know, I always say when you, to fresh graduates who are about to start their practice, the first thing is to be the best doctor you can be for your patients. Leadership opportunities will come along if that's what you want. But first is to become the best doctor you can be. And then to never close any door or window to an opportunity. Just because you're not able to do something at this time point doesn't mean it may not happen two, three, five, ten years down the road. My career has taken a lot of twists and turns that I never would have anticipated. Um, And so to be open to any potential Uh, that may come along, that may seem interesting and unique, investigate it and see if it's the right time for you. Dr. Hall, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you so much.